Um, and I think those are pretty much the announcements of the week and the things that are going on. Uh, the good news, of course, is that from midnight tonight, uh, the lockdown levels change. Tomorrow night, you can stay out till midnight. Isn't that awesome? Woohoo! Next week, also, we won't be limited uh, to our 50 people here on a Sunday morning. Next week, we can have 500 people in the car park. So, yay! Isn't that awesome? So, bring all your friends, 500 people outside, and of course, it's going to rain next week, so bring your umbrella. Um, uh, do please keep praying for us as a church and our way forward. We're still waiting to hear from the Department of Education as to what happens in terms of the school hall. Um, if that doesn't work out in the meantime, we do, uh, we will hopefully in the next month or so have an option to go inside here in the Methodist Church because Alan and the Methodist Church folk are being very kind to us at the moment and we're grateful to them. Um, but yeah, just all of that stuff, keep us in your thoughts, minds and prayers. Okay, um, before we get to the sermon this morning, it's always good to just take a moment to try and, to try and disconnect from the buzz of the world and the stuff that's gone on and all the week and and just focus our attention heavenward for a moment just that whole thing of look up look up instead of gazing on ourselves and being consumed with ourselves to just for a moment look up and consider consider jesus and so this morning what we're going to do a little different we're going to do a a meditation so if you can also cross-legged and get your hands and go home, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that, Ella. Um, what we are going to do is I'm going to ask you to just, I'm, uh, we're going to go through the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to, I'm going, we're going to do the Lord's Prayer this morning, but I'm going to just give little phrases and give a moment of, to pause and reflect on that phrase. What I'm going to do as well is Charles Wesley. I mean, we're in a Methodist church property, so we've got to make reference to the Methodist church grandfather right um, so Charles Wesley has written uh, he did this like 350 years ago has written like a, a kind of a, a meditation I guess around the Lord's Prayer just prompting us to think through a little bit of what the Lord's Prayer is actually about so that's what we're going to do this morning we're going to play some light music in the background to get you in the mood um, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just as I go through we'll just have some quiet moments for you to pause and reflect and just allow the Lord's Prayer to be more than just words in the Bible, things that you said when you were a kid 25, 30 years, 50, 60 years ago at school and allow this prayer to uh, lift your gaze, lift your eyes, lift your thoughts to Jesus. Alright, so are we ready for this? Callum, are you ready for this? So let's, let's close our eyes. Our Father, our Father who are good and gracious to all, our Creator, our Preserver, the Father of our Lord Jesus and of us in Him, your children by adoption and grace, not my Father only, but the Father of the universe, of the angels, of the church. Who art in heaven, filling heaven and earth and beholding all things in heaven and earth. 
knowing every creature and all their works and every possible event from everlasting to everlasting the almighty lord and ruler of all superintending and disposing all things of the earth do your will as willingly as the holy angels. May they do it continually without any interruption of their willing service. O Spirit of grace, make them perfect in every good work to do your will and work in them all that is well-pleasing in your sight. us today our daily bread. O Father, we claim nothing of right, only of your free mercy. We take no worry for tomorrow. We trust you for all things needful for our souls and our bodies. Not only the meat that perishes, but the bread that is eternal. Your grace endures to everlasting life. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Give us, O Lord, redemption in your blood, the forgiveness of sins. As you enable us freely and fully to forgive, so forgive us our trespasses. Lead us 
us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Wherever we are tempted, O Lord, you who help our infirmities, do not allow us to be overcome or to suffer loss by it. Make a way for us to escape so that we may be more than conquerors through your love over all sin and the consequences of it. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. Yours is the sovereign right of all things that are or ever were created. Yours is the power whereby you govern all things in your everlasting kingdom. Yours is the praise due from every creature for all your wondrous works, which endure through all ages forever and ever. And so, Lord, we thank you for these few moments this morning just to reflect on you, to allow our thoughts to be guided by your Spirit and by this prayer. May we find this morning that our gaze has been lifted from earth to heaven, that our thoughts have moved from our own uh, preoccupations and that we'll find in these few moments now that we become preoccupied with you. May we in these few moments this morning together find nourishment for our souls. Find that you and you alone satisfy. Lord, we would pray for those in need this morning and we want to remember members of our own church pray for Pearl and her family this morning as they mourn the loss of mom and we pray for pray for them today we pray for Babette and Shane and the kids today as they just have the worry of, of mom of Omar being sick and we pray for Alna in hospital today and that you would strengthen and restore her Lord, in all of these things, we rest, we rest in you and in your good grace, kindness and mercy to us. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Alrighty. Does anybody else have any family news? Everyone's happy, everyone's healthy. We're all loving it. And there's nothing like being outside in the sunshine to enjoy it, right? Mm -hmm. Fantastic stuff. Um, <clears throat> there were two rather disturbing news items this well, well, there were a lot of disturbing news items this week, but there were two in particular that have reference to where we're going this morning. Last weekend, somewhere down in the Eastern Cape, a policeman pulled over a guy who, who just looked suspicious. Um, he was walking down the street with a carrier bag in his hand, and when they arrested him and had a look in the carrier bag, they discovered that he was carrying his mother's, what, purse, handbag, uh, severed head. <laughs> 
Uh, of all the things that you would carry in a shopping bag, right? His mother's severed head. Can you believe it? Uh, apparently, her body was in his home. She, he left the body there. It's just, just bizarre. In, what on earth? And then, um, just a couple of days later, I think on Wednesday afternoon, police arrested an 18-year-old. He'd got into a fight with a 17-year-old, and the fight had resulted in the 18-year-old decapitating the 17-year-old. And he also took the head home with him and left the decapitated body in a ditch on the side of the road. I'm like, what on earth? Now, here's the thing, of course. Um, decapitation is not a new thing in our world. Um, it's not a modern thing. It, it, it's, uh, it has a, an interesting history, doesn't it? So if you know anything about your history, you'll know that going back to the, the Middle Ages, like 1200s, 1300s in England, that they would regularly stick up severed heads on London Bridge. Um, so any a, a traitor or a, a notorious murderer would have his head chopped off and they would put it on display on the bridge. And in fact, there was a, 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 there was a guy who had a job. His title was the keeper of the heads. And it was his job to look after the severed heads on London Bridge. And so they chop some guy's head off, they would parboil the head and then coat it in tar or in pitch to preserve it. And he would take the heads out every morning to put them on display and then in the evening bring them back in for the night. And a well-looked-after, well-preserved head could last for up to 20 years on London Bridge. <laughs> oh dear. Um, then, of course, this, we, we have King Henry VIII. What's he known for? Beheading his wives. Yes. How many wives did Henry VIII have? No, he had six. He had six wives. How many of them did he have beheaded? I actually wondered if it was all of them, but it's in fact, it's only two. So he's quite restrained of the guy, right? <laughs> two out of six, that's not bad. Uh, yeah, exactly. Why does everyone make such a big deal? Uh, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard both had their heads chopped off um, because, well, Henry was tired of them. Uh, it's, you know, one way to deal with your wife, I guess. Anyway. Um, and then you can take, yeah, I see some of the husbands having a look around at the moment and wondering. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you can skip forward a couple of hundred years and you get to the French Revolution. And what's, the, what's one of the things that the French Revolution is well known for? The guillotine. Guillotine, yes, Madame Guillotine. And do you know where the guillotine came from? Who invented it? An Englishman. Yay to England. But here's the thing, right? They bring the guillotine into France, and in a, in the, over the course of one year during what was called the Reign of Terror, 17,000 French citizens were executed on the guillotine. That's an awful lot. Uh, you know, 365 days a year? Who's good at math? That, that's a lot of people a day to have their heads chopped off, right? Y you know what's interesting? Is that the French continued to use the guillotine as their primary means of execution right up until 1977. It's like quite recent that they were still chopping heads off on the guillotine. Um, they said it was humane because it was quick, 
it was pretty instant you didn't even know it happened as long as the blade was sharpened nicely and the thing slid well but up to i mean 1977 that's quite recent for what in many ways just feels like a barbaric thing to do doesn't it anyway with those grisly images in mind and i know that some of the young children are now ready to throw up um, we're going to turn to the gospel of matthew this morning and so if you'd like to turn with me to matthew chapter 14 so we finished second corinthians last week um, and dealing with strength and weakness and you may have noticed over the last couple of years i've kept circling back to matthew a couple of times last year we spent about six weeks in matthew chapter 12 the year before that we were in matthew 9 and 10 just because we want to be reminded that it is all about jesus actually in the end of the day and we want to keep going back to jesus and being reminded about jesus and so this morning from matthew chapter 14 <clears throat> and we're going to read the first uh, 12 verses of Matthew 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist, and he's risen from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but was afraid of the people because they believed he was a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she, she, uh, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. And had John beheaded in prison. His bread, his bread, his head, <laughs> his head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came, took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. We're going to finish this year in Matthew 14, 15 and 16. And I know you might be going, finishing the year? It's only 10 weeks to December. Um, the year is nearly done, so start getting your Christmas decorations out. You might as well. What else has there been to do this whole year? Um, because it's just around the corner, right? Now, one of the key things about chapter 14 is that chapter 14 marks a change in the ministry of Jesus. And in fact, you get a hint of it in those closing verses of chapter 13. Chapter 13 is about Jesus uh, speaking in parables. And then he goes back to his hometown. He goes back to, uh, to Nazareth where he grew up and uh, begins teaching in the synagogues. And you would expect that uh, this is a big homecoming. The king is here. Everyone should be excited. Jesus, who's been performing miracles all over the place, has come home. Yay! But instead, the response of the people to Jesus is, Hey, isn't that the carpenter's son? Who does he think he is? Um, 
you know, what's he doing here trying to show, show how, you know, how impressive he is? And he is rejected by his hometown. And that actually really starts uh, what happens in these next couple of chapters, that Jesus being rejected in his hometown begins to be a bit of a theme over the coming chapters. Up until now, Jesus has been well received in uh, all over the place, and he spent a lot of time in synagogues, preaching and teaching wherever he goes. He's just been to the synagogue in his hometown. It's in the synagogue that they actually reject him. And what we start reading about now is Jesus withdraws. The terrible thing about the wind is that it keeps blowing pages in my Bible all over the place. But if, if you look at the next verse, the verse that we didn't read, verse 13, Jesus heard about what happened and withdrew by boat to a private place. And then later on in verse 23, he dismisses the crowd and he goes up the mountainside alone. In chapter 15 and verse 20 something, 29, 20, 21, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew. And in fact, all along these chapters, you just keep reading about Jesus leaving this place, Jesus leaving that place, and going away, trying to get away from the crowds and the people. And so if you, if you wanted a theme for these next few weeks of our sermon series, you'd have to call it silence, solitude, um, and seclusion, because that's what Jesus is looking for. But he never gets it. He just doesn't ever seem to find a place of silence and solitude. He's always with three groups of people. Either his enemies who want to kill him, or the crowds who are just desperately needy and want a piece of him, or the disciples who just don't get it. Very often in trying to be alone, Jesus is actually trying to be alone with his disciples to try and instruct them, but they just don't seem to get what's going on. And so then this morning, we get to this little story here, before we even get to dealing with Jesus, We've got this little story of uh, John the Baptist and Herod. And the, the, the event, the story starts with Herod saying, who is Jesus? And again, that's actually one of the themes of the coming few chapters. Who is Jesus? Is he the carpenter's son? Is he some random loony wandering around the wilderness? Is he a miracle man worker? Is he a, a magician? Is he a prophet? Who is he? And the highlight of the next few chapters is actually in chapter 16 when Peter goes, Hey, I get it. I know who you are. Except he doesn't really. Because the very next couple of verses, Jesus then has to say to Peter, Get behind me, you devil. You don't understand. So it's all about now wondering who this Jesus is. And here's Herod wondering, Who is Jesus? Herod's heard that Jesus has been around in, the, in, in, his, in his area of, of rule. He, he's heard that Jesus is out preaching and teaching and healing and performing miracles. And he wonders, who is Jesus? And Herod gets very superstitious about this whole thing. And Herod goes, oh, it's a ghost. It's a, it, it's a zombie. It's John the Baptist reincarnated. It must be John. Because Herod has a guilty conscience. Because Herod, as we read, has had recently had John executed. And so, so Matthew uses this moment to fill us in on what's happened to John the Baptist. And I think that most of us here, most of us online, are pretty well aware of the story, and you probably are aware of the different characters in the story. But let me just fill you in on a couple of them and, you know, remind you of what's going on. So, so 
John, to start with, is Jesus' older cousin. John is the one who came to prepare the way for the Messiah. John is the one who came to, to prepare the way for the coming King. John, in many ways, is the last Old Testament prophet. So even though he appears in the New Testament, he functions as an Old Testament prophet, preparing and getting people ready for the coming of the Messiah. Jesus says that John is Elijah that you were waiting for. So in the Old Testament, there's a prophecy that just before the Messiah returns, Elijah will come first. And so the Jewish people were waiting and, and, and still are waiting for Elijah to come back. And Jesus says, John is Elijah. He's the one that's come to prepare the way. And John's message has been simple and clear. John's message has been repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Get ready. Turn. Change your ways. And the response to John has been somewhat overwhelming. Crowds have flocked from all over the place to hear and to listen to the message of John and to be baptized by him in the river. And amongst all the people that John has challenged and spoken to and spoken about, John has held nothing back and has been rather direct about Herod and he's called Herod to repent. <coughs> so, who is Herod? And why does Herod need to repent? Herod is the pretend king of Israel. There were four Herods in the New Testament. All of them father, son, grandson, and great-grandson. So that's a generation. And Herod is kind of the family name. The first Herod was Herod the Great, or Herod the Builder. And he was around when Jesus was born. And he started a great building project in the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, making it magnificent, trying to curry the favor of his subjects, the Jewish subjects. But you remember the story of Herod, that Herod the Great is the one who sought to, well, who did, who went and killed all the babies in Bethlehem when he heard the possibility that a king might have been born there. He dies. He divides his kingdom up into three or four parts, I'm not quite sure, hands them out to three sons and perhaps one daughter. Again, I'm not sure of that fourth and the daughter, but anyway, his kingdom is divided amongst his children. <clears throat> and this Herod is one of those children who has inherited a little portion of his father's greater kingdom. And it's, as we read, this, king, this Herod who kills John the Baptist. This Herod dies. And his son, another Herod, takes his place, <clears throat> and that Herod, we find out in the early chapters of Acts, has James, the brother of Jesus, who is the head of the church at the time, he has him executed, has him killed. He's, James is tossed off the roof of the temple and then beaten on the head, and then somebody else gets stabbed and killed. So this, this, the third Herod executes members of the church, of the early church. He's the guy that you may or may not remember in Acts chapter 12, gets eaten by worms and then dies. Most of us die and then get eaten by worms. This Herod had it the other way around, gets eaten by worms first. His son, Herod number four, he's the guy who has Paul put in jail and uh, keeps Paul in jail for two years before he sends him off to Rome. So I don't know if you spot kind of a, a recurring theme in the lives of the four Herods there. Every one of them has a hand in the execution, death, and hindrance of the expansion of the kingdom of God in the New Testament. That seems to be the role that, that the Herods play. 
Now, John challenges this particular Herod because this Herod has been a bad boy. Herod is married, and he goes and visits his brother Philip, and Philip is married to a lady called Herodias. Herod falls in love with Herodias, divorces his wife, and takes his brother's wife back home with him. <clears throat> Doesn't seem like they get married, but he now lives with his brother's wife. <coughs> Josephus, who's a, 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 an historian, he writes about the story, and it gets a little bit hazy and confusing, but it might even sound as though Herodias is also Herod's niece. So it's not just his brother's wife, but also his niece. It sounds a little bit hillbilly-ish in terms of family, you know, interconnectedness. My sister wife, you know, I don't know. Um, and John says, this is not right. If you're meant to be acting as the king of Israel, then you need to abide by the laws of Israel. And the laws of Israel are quite clear. You can't commit adultery, and you certainly can't, even if you do get married, you can't get married to your sister's, to your brother's wife. That's just not allowed. And Herodias, the, the lady, doesn't like what John has been saying. She pressures her husband and has John thrown into jail. John locked up in prison. And now it's Herod's birthday, and there's a bit of a birthday party going on. And birthday parties in those days, this kind of thing would have been an all-boy affair. This is like a frat party with kegs, and it's, it's a little bit out of control. And when everyone is well, well liquored up, Salome, Herodias' daughter, comes in and dances. And we, we assume the way that Matthew and Mark and Luke all speak of her, she's a young girl. She's maybe 12 or 13 years old. And she's not putting on some kind of innocent dance. She's dancing. <laughs> Take that as you want. And Herod is so excited and enthusiastic about this dance that he promises her anything that she wants. And I think Mark's gospel says anything up to half my kingdom. Now, to be honest, he doesn't have a kingdom. And even if he did, it's actually under the Romans, and he doesn't, have, he doesn't have the authority to give it away. But that's what he's promising anyway. He's so excited by what he's seen, he'll give her anything she wants. And she goes to her mom and says, you know, I don't know what I want, because what teenage girl does know what she wants other than a new dress, right? Um, so she doesn't know what she wants, so she goes to her mom, and mom says, the perfect gift, the perfect thing that, that any, any young girl would want the head of John the Baptist, and can you please bring it to me on a meat platter that's just recently been used to serve the roast beef. What's she going to do with this head? Pour boil it and hang it over a bed? And so, John the Baptist, who prepares the way, who is the last prophet, the one whom Jesus says is the greatest man that ever lived, dies at the request of a 12-year-old girl. Why do we have the story in the Bible? Is, does Matthew just put the story in here just because he wants us to know a little bit of history? Just because we need to know what happened to John? You know, why don't we hear about him anymore? What happened to him? Here's a couple of things, right? The Jehovah Witnesses will tell you <laughs> that the reason that this story is in here is to tell us why we shouldn't have birthday parties. So, I, I know you know this, Jehovah Witnesses do not celebrate birthdays, they do not have parties, and 
they, they, apparently they really do take you to this passage as one of the reasons why we shouldn't celebrate parties. If you have a birthday party, someone might lose a head. So just saying, for your next birthday, uh, you know, who's, who's, who here is having a birthday next? Yeah, Ella, when's your birthday? Oh, that's a long time still. Paige? Just had it. Just had it. You, that's right, you just had Good. I hope you didn't have a birthday party. Just saying. Because you can't have parties at the moment, true. It might get coronavirus, which is worse than losing your head, apparently. Um, so, so that's apparently what the Jehovah Witnesses would say. I think, though, that as good Baptists, we would have to say that this story is in the Bible to show us why we shouldn't dance. Right? Because you... If you're a good Baptist and you've been in Baptist churches long enough, you know that Baptists will tell you, thou shalt not dance. Dancing is the greatest sin ever. And it's, uh, can I get an amen, right? <laughs> it's why on a Sunday morning, no matter how good our music is, no one in our congregation does anything other than this. Right? As Baptists, we just can't dance. I mean, we can maybe get, you know, try and get a little bit of a groove on, you know. No, we can't do that. No, we just can't dance. And it's because of the story. Because if you dance, somebody might lose their head. It's, it's why we don't do the flag waving and banners, right? Because that's when somebody does lose a head, when you're waving those things around. I, I, I don't think that that's why Matthew included that story here. I don't think it's got anything to do with parties and dancing. The primary reason that this story is in the Bible is because it brings clarity of who Jesus is. That's the whole point of the story. Who is Jesus? And the real issue in the story is just this. Who will be king? Who will be king? Who will be the true king of Israel? Who will be the king of God's people? Who will rule and reign over them? Let me tell you a little bit more about King Herod. To start with, Herod isn't actually Jewish. He's got some Jewish blood in him, but he's actually Edomian, to which you all go, oh, of course, that make, now I know, it all makes sense. Not only that, he's not actually a king. I mentioned that earlier. His dad was the king, and his dad divides his territory up into three or four equal parts, Herod then applies to Rome and says, Hey Rome, hey Mr. Caesar, can you please make me king? And Caesar ignores him, gives the kingship to someone else. So he's not actually king. He calls himself a king, but he's, he's kind of the fake king. What about the Edomian thing? What's that all about? Edomia is the fancy Greek word, or the fancy Greek way of saying Edom. And you go, Oh, well, that makes a lot more sense. Now we know that Herod is a big Dutch cheese. Right? Edom. Nothing at all, of course. Edom is a country right next door to Israel. It's just to the east. It's a little bit smaller, just to the east. Edom and Israel never got on well together. In fact, when the Babylonians come and destroy Jerusalem, the Edomites stand along the sidelines with their pom-poms and they're cheering Babylon along. Go Babylon, go. Destroy Jerusalem. We like this. And when Jerusalem is burnt to the ground, the Edomites come in and rake... Amen. 
So here, here's, here's where I'm going to start from, just the fact that we, we kind of finished with um, Herod is setting himself up as a, as a king, and he's setting himself up in opposition to Jesus, who is actually the true king. And then in Matthew's gospel, it really is all about who is the king. Um, Matthew's keen for us to understand that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the fulfillment of um, the, all, all the Old Testament prophecies about um now i've got a fly buzzing around me yeah. matthew wants us to know that jesus all the promises that are made to david all the promises about the king are fulfilled in jesus that jesus is the inheritor of the legacy of david that jesus is david's greater son and so matthew writing his gospel to a jewish audience um filling his gospel with old testament references all to say jesus is the king we've been waiting for he's the one who's come to establish his kingdom and so here we have in in the middle of his gospel this challenge um, th that the false king is in the way now the thing the thing about Herod the the false king is that actually he's pretty he's a pretty cool guy if you just take away the whole chop the head off thing I mean Herod's a fun guy isn't he he's all about pleasure pleasure He's all about, let me do as I want to do. He's all about, um, let me live as I please. Herod is a, Herod's a party guy. Um, he's, he's, about, he's got power. He's got wealth. He, he's generous. He's willing to spend his money on a, on a lap dance. He's got lots of friends hanging around with him. So Herod's the, guy, Herod's the fun guy who's all about wealth and power and success. Herod's everything that we aspire to in our modern world he's got the girl he's got the palace he's got the power of life and death in his hand and what does jesus the true king have well jesus has got a hole in the ground to sleep he doesn't even have a home jesus certainly doesn't have a whole lot of wealth jesus in fact appears to be nothing more than an insignificant peasant and you and i have to decide we've got to choose before whom will we bow who will we bend our knee to? Because this is the storyline of the whole Bible. Who will be king? God's king or the king of our own choosing? The story of 1 Samuel, that's the storyline of that whole book. You've got the people's choice for king. King Saul, who is tall and handsome and good looking and promises everyone will get a vineyard. But he can't even look after donkeys. And when the giant comes, the people's king who's meant to rescue them hides in his tent. But God's king, on the other hand, is small, young, insignificant, not much to look at, spends much of his time living in a cave, but has never lost a sheep and fights our battles and defeats our giants for us. And the question is, will we surrender to our own king, the king of our own choosing, and pursue our own little kingdom? Or will we bow down to God's king? And many of us 
to be honest, we like the idea of Herod. Pleasure, fun, success, wealth, bunch of friends, power. What's not to like? And we all bow down to something. We all do. We all will. You'll offer your life and build your kingdom on something. Your career, your family, your pleasure, applause. And all of those things are good things. Family's a good thing, right? But some of us have turned our children into kings. And we bow down before them and we say, whatever you demand, I will do. And we live our lives for our kids. And the kids are in charge and they run a little kingdom where you're the subject. Or success, we make success our kingdom. And that becomes the thing that we pursue with everything we have and we'll sacrifice everything. We'll even sacrifice our kids on the altar of success because that's what we're bowing down to. Listen to something Paul Tripp says. Paul Tripp, he, he's the guy with the big moustache, you may remember, from church camp a couple of years ago. And I just thought he's, he, he just says it so well here. He says, I live in Philadelphia, and a few miles outside the city limits is, uh, uh, is the King of Prussia Mall. It is uh, the biggest retail center in the United States of America. So you would imagine it's a pretty big mall. Watercrest Mall, not quite as big as the King of Prussia Mall. A few years ago, the mall had a marketing strategy, a marketing slogan, Your Kingdom Awaits. Whoever came up with that phrase was a brilliant theologian and deeply understood the condition of the human heart. Since the beginning of time, the lie of the enemy has been this. Your ultimate joy and satisfaction is found when you build your kingdom. It's what the serpent said to Adam and Eve in the garden. You can do it better. You can have a better life. Do it your way. You don't need to listen to God. And every day, just like the mall slogan, you and I are invited to build our own kingdom. And where are we at risk of building our kingdoms in the situations, locations, and relationships of everyday life? And what Paul does is he outlines four different areas and takes four different examples from Scripture to show us some of the things that we build our empires, our kingdoms on. Number one, pleasure and comfort. In Numbers 11, the people of Israel are willing to sacrifice their freedom for slavery. They want to go back from the wilderness to Egypt because in Egypt they had meat and cucumbers and leeks and garlic. So Paul says this, I love how much of the glory of God in creation is edible, and it's not sinful to enjoy pleasure and comfort. But beware. Chasing momentary physical pleasure in an attempt to build your own kingdom will always lead to slavery and bondage. Number two, schedule and organization. In Exodus 32, the Israelites built a golden calf in an act of idolatry. Why do they do this? Well, one of the reasons we're told is because Moses delayed in coming down the mountain. Right? We build a calf because Moses is late. You'll understand that it's Paul and not Chris saying this when he says, I'm a very task-oriented person. Organization and time management is important in God's kingdom. But beware. 
allowing the schedule of our lives to become the dominating idol can lead us to foolish acts of worship. Number three, position and power. In Luke 22, Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he's instituting the new covenant. They're breaking bread and passing around the cup of, of the new covenant, the, the, the grape juice, the wine. What could be more significant than this moment for the disciples? And we read this. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. God wisely creates structures of leadership and has gifted people in different ways. But beware. Our status can rise to such a level of selfish significance that we become blind to the beautiful moments of God's kingdom. And then fourthly, affirmation and approval. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul recounts the story of where Peter allows his fear of man to alter the message of the gospel. Remember, Peter's eating with Gentiles and then some Jewish guys comes along and Peter pulls away. And Paul says that's contrary to the gospel. We should strive to be respected and to be loved by others. But beware. Our concern over what others think of us can quickly shake, shape our actions and words so, so, more so than the transcendent glories of the gospel. So to be clear, pleasure, comfort, schedule, organization, position, power, affirmation, and approval are not unimportant to the kingdom of God. But beware. All too often, these things can become the driving motivation in our lives and the foundation on which we build our personal kingdoms. King Herod is all about pleasure and comfort and power and approval. And we love him for it. One of the interesting things about King Herod is that he rules by fear. And in fact, he himself is fearful. He's afraid of the crowds. That's why he won't kill John the Baptist initially and rather puts him in prison. And then when the stepdaughter asks for John's head, he's fearful of his wedding guests, or sorry, his birthday party guests, and kills him out of fear. Herod, the false king, is driven by fear. And that becomes the pattern when we run our own little kingdoms, building our lives on our, our, ourselves as the own, our own king. Because fear becomes the driving factor in all of those things. We're driven by success. But lurking beneath that is the fear of what happens when this all falls apart. Driven by relationships, but the fear of what happens when the relationship collapses. And so to maintain the status quo, we'll use manipulation to get what we want. Or we're driven by applause, but then the fear of what happens when people no longer like me as much as they used to. Or we bow down to the king of health and youth. And we're driven by the fear of getting old, and it's Botox and hair implants. Mm. And it sounds a little silly, but the truth is that deep down, when we're running our own kingdoms, living our own empires, building our own, you know, doing our own thing like that, we set ourselves up to live by fear. And it's not just me that says that. 
Some of the greatest poets of our age say the same thing. Listen to, listen to the words of the, those great theologians from Metallica, because I know that so many of you listen to Metallica, right? Wish I may, wish I might, have this I wish tonight. I want it, right? Are you satisfied? Dig for gold, dig for uh, fame, you dig to make your name. Are you pacified? All the ones you waste, all the things you've chased. And then it all crashes down. And you break your crown. And you point your finger, but there's no one around. Just, you just want one thing, just to play the king. But the castle's crumbled, and you're left with just a name. Where's your crown, king nothing? So even they recognize you build yourself up on, on, a, on applause and fame and have it all. But it can be taken away in an instant. And you want to blame others for where it's gone. But the kingdom has, the, the castle that you've built, has come, it comes crashing down. And you're wearing a broken crown. And you're just king nothing. Are you satisfied? The other thing with King Herod is, and it's somewhat obvious, I guess, is that Herod gets to silence the word of God. John speaks God's truth to him. John convicts of sin. John points out how Herod's kingdom is in conflict with the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating. And what does Herod do? Well, he locks up, Je locks up John, and then he kills John. Why? Because the word of God convicts, points out our failings, and yes, it's Herodias who actually wants John dead. She makes sure it gets done. She's not going to have some prophet telling her what she can and cannot do. And how often we're the same in our little kingdoms. We silence the word of God because we don't want the word of God to challenge our power, our pleasure, our comfort. We don't want his kingdom to rock our throne. And so the word of God is twisted, locked away, ignored, so that we can carry on with our own indulgence. Can the word of God truly be silenced? Of course not. See, the other thing in this story, and this is where we end this morning, is that this story gets us ready for another execution. It gets us ready for another attempt to silence God's word. It gets us ready to for, for the, the attempt to dethrone the true king. The story acts as a foreshadowing of what is to come in Jesus. If they'll do this to John, what will they do to John's greater cousin? But while John is silenced in death, Jesus is lifted up in death that the whole world may know. And on the cross, God's purposes of redemption are accomplished. And while the false king thinks he's won and thinks his kingdom is safe, the execution of the king is nothing more than the shaking of the foundations of his world. And so you and I must choose because the war is on and the battle is for your heart. And which kingdom will you build? Will you build your own or will you build the kingdom of God? Who will, who will wear the crown? Will you put the crown on yourself and all the many kinglets of your own pleasure and power and productivity? Or will you kneel before God's king? In closing this morning, let me read from Psalm 2. 
Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth, that's you and I, take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one, his true king. Let us break their chains, they say. Let us throw off their fetters. Just like Herod and Herodias. How dare God tell me how I should live. But the one enthroned in heaven, he laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then rebukes them in his anger. And terrifies them in his wrath. And says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this morning, kiss the sun, kneel before the king. Blessed are those who find their refuge in him. Let's pray. And so Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you are the true king. And that even though this world will seek to silence you, you have been raised on high and you will never be silenced. Lord, help us as we examine our own hearts and find so often that we have become king nothing. We have established our kingdoms. We want to rule and reign. We want to live by pleasure and, and comfort and ease. We forget that you have called us to follow you in your kingdom and follow the way of the cross. Lord, may we exalt you as king this morning. May we bow and kiss the Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.